I think, and I actually read about that in a commentary this week, and it suggested that the doorway and the threshold just is a representation of the whole place just being being shook. Um, if you and the commentator likened it to, he used to live, um, I think, near a place where like jet planes would take off, and they would there would actually be times where you'd break the sound barrier, and so there would be kind of a boom. And he's like, the only thing you really noticed were like the doors would rattle or the windows would rattle. So probably the entire house rattled, but you don't notice that. You just notice what you can hear. And so the threshold, the doorway is usually loose, looser, you know. So, so he kind of likened it to that. Yeah. Anybody else before we get started? All right. Well, let me go ahead and pray and we will dig into this amazing chapter. Just one chapter today. Praise the Lord. But it's rich, really rich. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for these women who have gathered to study it this morning. And, um, you know, we're going to look at literary structure. And we're going to look at word meanings. And we're going to look at grammar. And we're going to look at all these technical things. But the the reason we're here is to feast. Um, We are here to uh, know you better. We are here to experience your presence through uh, the study of your word, and we are here to see our Savior and to treasure him more deeply uh, and live lives that more uh, clearly reflect who he is. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get bogged down in the technicalities, but that those technical things would serve a much bigger purpose Um, and allowing us to really see you uh, with fresh eyes, and that that, having seen you, would um, accomplish the work you desire to do in and through our lives. Uh, We love you so much. We thank you for this vision that's recorded for us that we get to um, walk through this morning, and I pray that it would uh, serve your people so very well, um, that we might go forth and do the work you've called us to do. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you've known me for pretty much any amount of time, probably 10, 15 minutes, I probably mentioned my favorite quote of all time from one of my favorite books of all time. A lot of you, you've been in my Bible studies before, you oh, my gosh, okay. She has to mention this every time. I really do. I really do have to mention it every time. Um, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Favorite quote of all time. You guys ready? I'm about to read it to you. It's in chapter one. The title of that chapter is Why We Must Think Rightly About God. And he says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most significant fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Those are powerful words, and they're words I've been chewing on now for about 20 years. <laughs> but they definitely come into view um, this morning as we open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. 
And I think we need to, one question I've pondered a lot is what do we do when we realize that our thoughts of God are too small? <laughs> I mean, if it really is true that the most important thing about, about us is what comes to our minds when we think about God, and we could probably all say, you know what? What comes to my mind when I think about God probably isn't big enough, right? It's probably, it could, it could grow. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, a variety of answers could be given, but one of them is to meditate long and hard on passages like Isaiah 6. They're just certain passages in the Bible. They're, they're big God passages, right? They're just, they're, they're kind of a one-stop shop for just really reflecting on the glory and the majesty of God. And so that is what we're here to do this morning, or at least begin to do this morning. I've really been looking forward to walking through this passage together. As a Bible teacher, passages like this... Um, are a mixed bag. I mean, it's, it's exciting to know that most of you probably, if you've been around church for a while, you came in here with some familiarity. You know, I mentioned the first week, there's like maybe five passages in Isaiah that anybody who's grown up in the church knows. This is one of them. Um, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard, I don't know, at least a dozen, probably more sermons on Isaiah chapter six. So for me as a Bible teacher, um, that's supposed to both a relief, and it's also kind of like, uh, I'm not going to have anything new for you today. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit always has new insights for us, right? And these passages, sometimes that we know so well, they hit us in different seasons, and God reveals different aspects, and that's the beauty of, of Bible study. I will tell you that every sermon I have ever heard on this passage ends at chapter, at verse 8. Never goes beyond that. We are going beyond that. So in that sense, buckle up. All right. We are, we're going we're gonna to really get outside the box here. All right. <laughs> That's right. We're going to do the whole chapter. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start reading. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. All right, let's go ahead and stop there. Um, the first thing we see, and if you have your listening guide there, is that God is a glorious, holy king who reigns over all. And there's a lot packed into that one statement. You're going to see a lot of references to, to kings, kingship, reign, throne. It's a very important theme throughout the book of Isaiah. Um, and so here we have, we have that here. Now, starts out year that King Uzziah died. Now, there are people that read a lot into that. They'll go on and on about the significance of, of King Uzziah dying. Probably it's mainly there as a time cue, which is marking time, um, telling us when this vision took place. Interestingly enough, in verse 1-1, we're told that Isaiah prophesied throughout the reign of Uzziah. So by the time you receive, we often think of this as like Isaiah had never been a prophet before, and then he gets this call, and, and then he starts. 
but actually he had been prophesying. He, he had been preaching, um, not to say this wasn't a significant moment in his calling and in his career, um, but at this time he had already been doing the work of the prophet. King Uzziah dies. Now, King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. That's a long time. Um, it, was a, it was a prosperous reign, but by the end of um, that reign, the threat of Assyria, remember there's two main bad guys we, we got to keep in mind as we study. There's Assyria that's going to come and wipe out the northern kingdom, also going to do some damage to parts of Judah, um, and then there's Babylon that's going to come in and finish Judah off, going to take out Jerusalem, all right? So those are the two enemies. By the time Uzziah dies, Assyria is starting to ramp up. It's getting bad. All right, and so that's kind of looming, looming in the horizon. So between that, between the threat of Assyria and the insecurity that comes when you have a king that's been on the throne for 52 years, he's done a pretty good job. Things have gone pretty well. You have that change of power. Um, it definitely leads to a sense of insecurity, right? National insecurity. Um, certainly for Isaiah, there was probably some personal insecurity as well. And so this is certainly a, a, a timely vision. Um, so probably just a time cue, but if we're going to read anything into that, that, that's what we would read into that. There was definitely an opportunity to feel insecure, and it'd be a really good time for God to show up and remind Isaiah he's really king <laughs> overall, and it's him, right? Well, let's take a look at what Isaiah sees, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys some questions, and feel free to actually answer me, all right? Um, so he sees the Lord, he sees the Lord. Now, um, again, we shouldn't read too much into this, but if you look at that word Lord in your Bible, is the O-R-D capitalized or lowercase? Okay, you have it capitalized. Okay, so when it's L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the personal name, a covenant name, Yahweh. If it's a lowercase O-R-D, it's Adonai. Um, so the word actually used here, interestingly, is, is, is at its master, its Lord. Um, and we'll see why he would choose that word um, moving on. All right? So we have Lord. What is the Lord seated on? A throne. All right? He is seated on a throne, and thrones, obviously, connote authority, power, sovereignty. And how is that throne described to us? high, it's lofty, it's exalted, so you might have a whole variety of words, our different translations, but yeah, it's, 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 it's above him, way, way above him, and so we have more of that spatial language here that I pointed out to you last week. We saw a lot of that. Um, I think it was chapter two um, where the people had put themselves up high, lofty and exalted, and God's saying, well, I'm going to switch that back around, all right, so here Isaiah is th seeing things as they really are. The Lord's throne is high and lofty. Um, the location noted is what? The temple. All right, now we don't know if Isaiah was actually in the actual temple in Jerusalem receiving this vision or if he was somewhere else and just in his vision he's in the temple. It, it doesn't clarify that. We don't know. What's significant is that kings would normally not reign in a temple, would they? They'd normally reign in a palace. Well, this king is reigning in a temple, so he's not just a king, he's a priest king, right? There's this priestly um, emphasis here. He's, he's in the temple. And, of course, for Isaiah and his fellow Israelites, the temple was not just a symbol of God's presence. It was where God dwelled. 
to where the glory of God made himself manifest among the people. Now, what does Isaiah see filling the temple? He sees the seraphim, but even before that, what aspect of God does he see? The, the robe, right? The, the train of his robe or the hem of his robe. So you get the picture of him. He's still like looking up. You know, a hem would be, the train would be toward, toward the base, right? And, and so this, this, this train is, is filling, this hem is filling the whole temple. And the significance of that is to give the reader a sense of the, the grandeur and the majesty and the size of what Isaiah is beholding here in, in the, the sense that God really is way up. Like he's, he's like, again, that, that spatial, that spatial language. All right, Frankie, is God alone? No. Who else is there? Seraphim are there. These seraphim are here. Now, it's really, it's really interesting. I always thought of the seraphim as like a, it's a title for these creatures. It's actually a transliteration from the Hebrew, meaning... Translators didn't even bother trying to come up with an English word for this because it means, vaguely, it's, it's hard to nail down. It means like fiery, uh, let's see, let me get it right. Oh, burning ones or fiery ones. It's like these fire things that are flying around. So I guess they didn't want us um, reading and, 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 you know, fiery ones were standing above him. That's a little, you know, <laughs> a little terrifying. So they just were like, let's just keep it seraphim. That's easy, Right. Um, so yeah, we have these these seraphim. They're they're interesting creatures, some kind of heavenly being. We would call them angels, right? This is a long way from cute chubby babies playing harps that we see in a lot of the the art, right? We aren't told how many Isaiah saw, but we are told that they are covering their faces and their feet with their wings, which indicates humility, indicates reverence. And these seraphim are calling to one another. And that word call means to shout, proclaim, announce. This is not a quiet scene. We know that it's not quiet because what Renee asked about, those door, like the doorposts are shaking, right? What are they proclaiming? Holy, holy, holy. And I had you go to Revelation chapter 4. John saw a similar thing, didn't he? When he, when he had his vision um, of, the, of the heavenly throne room. Yeah, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth. So let's spend a little time on that. It's a pretty significant declaration. Um, of course, we already know that for Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel is a very unique, it's an Isianic title for God. I always feel very scholarly when I say words like Isianic. Uh, but that's, it's very unique to Isaiah. He's the only one that uses that title for the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Um, so God's holiness is a big deal throughout this, this whole prophecy, this whole book of the Bible. Um, what's interesting is you, when you really start to nail down a definition of the holiness of God, it's, it's hard. Like anybody who's worth their salt will tell you it's like really hard to define. Um, but we've got to give it our best shot, right? <laughs> the word itself means set apart or separate, other. It's very much linked to God's transcendence and his moral perfection. So he's like so not us, right? He's so other, the otherness of God. Uh, you can think of God's holiness, and this has been the most helpful definition for me, as all of his attributes combined, <laughs> 
It's what distinguishes him from everything and everyone. It denotes the sheer godness of God. Now, there's an aspect of his holiness that is his moral purity. And when we talk about how we are supposed to be holy as God is holy, I think what we're pulling on there is the the moral purity aspect of, of God. But that's only only one part of it. Uh, Both here and in the book of Revelation, the angels are proclaiming the word not once, but three times. Now, we don't do this too often. I was watching Gilmore Girls the other day. If you're familiar with this show at all, one of the main characters, Lorelai, is obsessed with coffee. And she goes to a new coffee shop, and she says, coffee, 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 I need coffee, coffee, coffee. And the person behind the register gives her three coffees. And she's like, I didn't ask for three coffees. And she's like, you said coffee, coffee, coffee. She's like, no, I just really needed coffee. So I said, coffee, 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 not I need three coffees, right? And so that's kind of what's going on here. That's kind of what the Hebrew language does. Like he's, he's not just holy, holy, holy. He's like, he's like really holy. It's, it's a way in the Hebrew language to express a superlative or the totality of something. Um, so he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's He's superlatively holy. He's, um, I mean, it, it's, and it's not like one plus one plus one. It's more like holy times holy times holy. It's like exponential <laughs> is kind of how we, could, how we could think of that. That phrase, his glory fills the whole earth, points again to ownership and authority and sovereignty. Whose earth is this? It's God's earth. And so there's not one square inch over which his glory does not reign. So what we have in verse 3 is a weighty declaration of the supremacy and majesty of God. And it's one verse. What 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 do people like us do with one little measly verse? We read it and we move on. Check done. But my goodness... Verses like that, we need to make sure we sit in it and we meditate on it long enough to feel the weight, to feel the weight. And I, I kind of wanted to like stand here and maybe have Amy stand over there and I stand over there and we just shout this back and forth to each other as loud as we can, try to make the door frame shake. Um, and there could have been, I mean, we don't know how many seraphim. John saw myriads upon myriads. So, I mean, there could have, I, I, this could have been just like shouted so loud. We just read it, you know, we, we read it in the written text. But man, the, the weight, the weight, the gravitas of this verse. We have to move on this morning. But let's not move on, move on, right? Really, really weighty, important. Now, there's one more, uh, and I already mentioned this, the, the indication the seraphim were loudly declaring the holiness of God. Verse 4, their voices are actually shaking the building, um, and, and it's getting more and more terrifying as we go on. I mean, again, we read this, and we're like, oh, that's beautiful. God is beautiful. He's glorious. But, man, I guarantee you Isaiah was not having those feelings. This is terrifying. I mean, so again, we're like, oh, angels were flying around. No. Flames are flying around. Like, there's something about those creatures that looked fiery and hot, (laughs) right? Well, and the last detail we're given is that the temple was filled with smoke. 
And so while it's true that Isaiah saw the Lord, there was at least a, a smoke haze over it all. Now, was the smoke from the flaming angels? Was it from the burning coals on the altar? We don't know. We don't know if these angels were actually flaming or if that's a metaphor. To describe. I mean, we don't know. There's just so much we don't know. Um, but it, it, was, it, was, it was smoke, smoke. Again, adding to the, oh, this is weighty and terrifying and it's a big vision. And so what's the takeaway here as we get, as we get to the end of the description of what Isaiah is seeing? What conclusion can we draw about God from what we've, we've, we've read so far? And I don't know about you, but I pondered that, and I sat at my computer, and I was like, okay, what is the takeaway? What is the conclusion? And if you're like me, it is hard to form the words, right? I mean, what words would we use? God is awesome? Or would we say God is awesome, awesome, awesome? God is glorious. God is majestic. God is supreme. None of those seem quite to capture it, right? None of those seem quite big enough. And here's what I have concluded. If every grandiose word you can think of seems to fall short of capturing what God is revealing himself to be here, then you have probably come close to understanding what this passage is trying to convey. Like if you are stretching language to its limits, to, to, to try to express the, the majesty of God here, I think you've got it. <laughs> but if it's easy to think of a word, keep sitting in it for a while. You don't quite got it yet. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's how I, I would articulate what we take away here. Well, let's keep reading. I'm anxious to see, like, what, is, what in the world does Isaiah do when he sees this? Verse 5 tells us, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So as we move further into the chapter, what we see is that an awareness of God's glory gives way to repentance. It gives way to this self-examination confession. The increasing God leads to a decreasing Isaiah in a very, very big way. So Isaiah finally speaks, very first word out of his mouth, what is it? Woe. W-O-E. <laughs> Not W-H-O-A, like whoa. Like, it's like whoa, right? It's also not Wow. This vision is not an exhibit, it's not a spectacle, it's not a show. Isaiah is not being entertained, he is being crushed. He absolutely melts. And I have to be honest, usually when I see, like let's say I'm in a really powerful worship experience, or I really hear a, a, a testimony of God's power, so I'm usually like, wow, it's so great, you know? This isn't a wow. This is a whoa, this king. He, he's crushed. He melts. And why? What reason does he give for being ruined? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because, why? I'm a man of unclean lips. Yeah. Now, why lips? Why not, I'm a man of unclean eyes? 
ears, hands, feet? Why not an unclean heart or an unclean mind? Or why not just simply say, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm an unclean man? Why lips? Now, I never even thought to ask this question until I listened to a Tim Keller sermon this weekend. You know, like me and TK, we are like tight. He suggests that the reason Isaiah repents of his unclean lips has to do with Isaiah's gifting. We don't know for sure, but I've been chewing on that. Isaiah's skill set, his area of greatest competence was his lips. He was a prophet. He was a preacher. He was a wordsmith. And oh my goodness, you read his writing, and he he was a darn good one, you guys. This man is a genius. Isaiah's lips were his greatest asset. It was the source of his success and the primary vehicle of his work for God. Prior to this temple vision, if God were to ask him, what do you have to offer me, Isaiah? What do you bring? What do you you have to bring to the table? His answer would be a no-brainer. My lips, of course. My lips. They were undoubtedly his pride and joy. Now, why does this matter? Well, We think of repentance as turning from sin, turning from our failures, turning from the bad things we do, which it is. That is a very important part of repentance. Don't hear me say anything differently. But repentance, properly understood, is also turning from our righteousness. Not just turning from our failures, it's also turning from our successes. It's acknowledging that we don't have anything to bring to the table. (laughs) Because even the best thing we might come up with, the area of our greatest competence, the source of our significance and success is nothing when you're standing before a holy God. We don't hear a lot about repenting of our successes. But maybe just maybe our successes pose an even greater threat than our failures. Because they lure us into thinking we have something to offer God and that his blessing hinges on how well we steward it. You know, it's interesting the language we use. We never say, we would never, as as gospel-believing, born-again Christians say, well, I still am earning God's grace. We don't talk like that. We know that's not true. But we say things like, well, God will withhold his blessing if. Somehow we have detached blessing and grace, like they're two different things. God doesn't bless you because of your lips or your gifts and how well you use them and how faithful you steward them. God blesses because God blesses. Grace all the way. It's not like salvation by grace, sanctification by effort. No, no, no. It's grace all the way through. All the way through. (laughs) We forget that sometimes. We can start to believe that God's love for us is contingent, at least a little bit, a little bit, on what we can do for him. That's not true. And so I think we'd all do well to pause here and kind of ask, what what self-righteousness do I need to repent of? What are my lips? And here's a good test. What makes you feel okay when things aren't okay? I don't know about you. I'm in a season in my life where, like, most things are just falling off the rails right now. 
And like when I lay in bed at night, I can say, well, at least I, at least I t- still teach Bible study. At least I, still, at least I do that okay. Or at least I still have a, a good marriage. Or at least I don't have this falling apart, <laughs> right? That's your lips. You know, how you fill in that way. Well, at least I fill in the blank. That's your lips. That's your thing. That's, your, that's, that's what makes you feel okay when nothing's all that okay, but, like, at least you've got that. In light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the best we have to offer, those lips are unclean. They're unclean. And if you showed up tomorrow before God, you didn't have them anymore, guess what? He wouldn't love you any less. And if you show up tomorrow and you have honed that skill and you're better at it, he wouldn't love you anymore, (laughs) right? Like if you'd be having good kids, good marriage, good job, proficiency at spiritual disciplines, ministry success, reputation, financial stability, influence. Filthy rags, right? This made me think of, um, you ladies will love this. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. I honestly don't know if I've ever sung this in church, but I do know it, and I do love the words. There's a part of it that says, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to you for dress. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Foul to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Our strengths aren't strengths at all. (laughs) And a renewed vision of the holiness of God is the one and only pathway out of self-righteousness. And a bunch of good Christian ladies, you guys, we are on Bible study. We're at Bible study on a Tuesday morning. We are good Christian women. And a lot of you are here with some blanks filled in, like you did your homework. This is the cream of the crop. We are not the slackers. Many of you are the reason why there are ministries still working and happening at this church. You're doing the work, and you're doing the thing, and you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it. And that is a beautiful thing. But, man, if God comes to us and says, what do you have to offer me? And you say, that thing I'm doing, that's what I have to offer you? Wrong. (laughs) Right? That's what I'm getting at. We have to get to a place where we see God so high and exalted that, like, even my lips are unclean. The best thing. All those blanks I filled in this week. Yeehaw, did my homework, unclean, doesn't merit any favor, doesn't merit any blessing, because only Jesus merits that, right? I thought that was a really, I I spent a lot of time chewing on that. Thank you, Tim Keller. (laughs) Well, let's read on and see what happens. We've seen his confession. All right, so he brings up his unclean lips. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips, so we already knew that, right? (laughs) In verse 6, he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, again, not cute, chubby baby, flaming angel creature, all right, flew to me, and in his hand was a cotton ball? No, 
We have a glowing coal from the altar there in the temple that he, he was carrying it with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. All right, so here we see that repentance gives way to cleansing. So the vision of God gave way to repentance. Now the repentance gives way to cleansing. Now, we had a really big emphasis on the need for cleansing in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah we walked through last week. And I pointed out, even though Isaiah says these people need cleansing, I pointed out he doesn't really tell us how it's going to happen. I said, we have to keep reading. We have to keep reading. He's going to get there. He's going to fill that in. But we don't quite know yet. And here we're given a little bit more information. All right? He still doesn't give us the full answer, but he's given us a little bit of an insight into how this cleansing is going to take place. So let's break down some of these details. All right, so we have these seraphim flying toward him, burning coal, held with tongs. Coal touches his mouth, his lips. Does this depict a pleasant experience? No. This is still terrifying, you guys. <laughs> but what is the outcome? Well, it's not just better lips, right? There, there's a total cleansing, a total cleansing, which is what Isaiah has already told us God wants to do for the entire nation. Remember that beautiful imagery? Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Right? So God wants to cleanse this nation. He wants to do to the nation what he's doing um, to Isaiah right here. Now, if you go back to Leviticus, our favorite book, remember? You go back to Leviticus, you'll see that the altar from which the coal was taken was a really significant piece of, I guess you could call it furniture, in the, in the temple. Uh, it's the place where God's wrath was satisfied by the offering of an animal, a blood sacrifice. And that's how sin in this particular time was forgiven and atoned for, was that re repeated blood sacrifice. And so that's why I say we're getting a little hint here of what Isaiah is going to really expand on when we get to like chapter 52, chapter 53. All right, he's going he's gonna to explicitly describe how the once and for all cleansing of God's people is going to take place. But here we're getting a little hint. It has something to do with that altar. It has something to do with the blood sacrifice. It has something to do with a substitute being offered for the people. Got a little, a little hint, a little tiny hint. That's, that's how the cleansing takes place. Now, big question. What did Isaiah do to cleanse himself? Nothing absolutely nothing. And that gets to the heart of one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah, which is the fact that we cannot save ourselves. I mean, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. <laughs> we cannot save ourselves. Cleansing from sin, atonement, forgiveness, we can't manufacture or earn those things. God alone can save. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about self-forgiveness. I need to forgive myself. And I'm not saying there's never a place for that language, but it's worth our time seriously processing that kind of thinking. I need to forgive myself, or I just can't forgive myself. Just processing, like thinking critically about, okay, how does that align with a gospel 
perspective, a biblical worldview, this idea of self-forgiveness. Um, again, I'm not saying it, it, sometimes it just means I need to accept something or, you know, we mean different things by that. But any concept of self-cleansing or self-forgiveness, um, I, I think the Bible pushes back against that a little bit. And so, again, I don't have an answer for you. I'm not saying it's always wrong to say that, but I think it's worth thinking about how does this idea of self-forgiveness fit with a, a biblical understanding of forgiveness and atonement and salvation and all those things. Just throwing that out there. That was free. It wasn't even in my notes. All right, verse 8. Let's move on. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. And so what we have here is, is, is we see that the cleansing gives way to surrender, right? So the vision gives way to repentance. Repentance gives way to cleansing, and the cleansing gives way to surrender. And I think we have a really beautiful pattern laid out here of the life of faith. What do forgiven people do? What do what, they, they say, here I am. Send me. They're, they're, they're full of joy and gratitude and like, what, he's done so much for me. What, what am I, what, I'll do anything for you, right? It's that, that overflow of just joy and love and, and gratitude. Or at least it should be, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, for sure, constantly having to check my motives <laughs> and ask myself the question, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I've been in the church a long time, you guys. I talked about it a little bit last week. Like, church, I could do church in my sleep. I mean, I, my whole life could be, I could be like, in the pit of sin, and I could come here, and you guys, I could totally fool you. I could stand here and teach a Bible lesson. I could, like, lift my hands and pray. I mean, I'm, like, good. I'm good at this, you guys. Like, I've been here since I was eight years old. I know how to do it, right? And, and we, so many of you are the same boat. Like, you know how to do it. I know how to teach a Bible lesson. I know how to serve in a ministry, and I know how to do it. Like, well, why? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Because over time, the spirit of, here I am, send me, where the cleansing has given way to surrender, like it's easy for that to kind of grow cold. And so you're doing it, I don't know, because you feel like, well, if I don't do it, God's hand won't be on my family and he won't bless us. And, or if I don't do it, you know, I'm going to like, well, I don't know. Like there's all kinds of motives we can have, Right. But the, the, the biblical motive, the, 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 the sustaining motive, would be just continued joy in the Lord. Continued, like, wow, I can't even believe what he's done for me. The cleansing, the forgiveness. And so I don't offer my life in service to Christ because I have to. I offer it because I get to. Like, it's a, it's a privilege in light of what Christ has done for me. And I will just say, the longer you're around this church thing, it can get hard to remember that that's the reason why we do this. That's the reason why we do this. Because of what's been done for us. It's an overflow. It's a response now, verse 8 has a certain excitement to it, right? It's like 
it's like being at a mission conference and you hear all the amazing stories and you're watching friends surrender to full-time ministry and you're like, yeah, Isaiah, go, right? And you're like ready to lay hands on this guy and send him out to preach the word. Then you get to verse 9. It like really kills the mood. And I think that's why I guarantee no one in this room has heard or heard a sermon on Isaiah 6 that's gone into verse 9. It stops there, you guys. <laughs> because we want to commission people to go on mission, and then we want to go home. Verse 9. And he replied, go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears, blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. (laughs) Well, that's the calling. That's the commission. This is a strange passage. It's also... Quite interestingly enough, the most frequently quoted Isaiah passage in the New Testament. Now, normally, we would expect surrender to give way to blessing. We would expect surrender to give way to fruitfulness, surrender to give way to converts and ministry growth. For Isaiah, surrender gives way to hardship. And the hardship is the complete and utter failure of his prophetic ministry, at least from a human perspective. Any human metrics that we would place on ministry, ministry success metrics, any you could think of, he fails on every count. From here on out, his message will have the opposite effect of what he intends. Instead of softening hearts, it will harden them. Instead of opening ears, it will deafen them. Instead of removing blinders, it will push the people further into darkness. Instead of bringing understanding, it will actually lead to greater confusion. This is what every preacher dreams of, right? It's a good thing Isaiah has repented of those lips, right? Because <laughs> if he was rooting his worth and his significance and approval and the effectiveness as a preacher, he'd be in big trouble. Now, what's being described here, it is kind of confusing, but it's, it's, it's God's wrath in the form of handing people over to their own desires, their own depravity. God does never, never takes soft hearts and makes them hard, but he does take hard hearts and makes them harder. And that's what he's going to do with, with Israel. Now, our hope, whenever God's word is proclaimed, is that it will soften hearts and open eyes. That's what we pray for. That's what we ought to pray for. But we have to always remember that what God does with his word is his prerogative, not ours, right? And sometimes it's very mysterious the way he chooses to work, and certainly this would fall in that category. Now, in verse 11, Isaiah asks a very valid follow-up question. It's the question I think all of us would ask. And then he said, until when, Lord? (laughs) Um, How long is my preaching going to have this effect on, on the people? Great question, I think. Uh, and he replied, let's see if we like God's answer here. Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, and land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness 
in the land? Can I have another answer, please? Right? <laughs> really depressing. And what we have here is another reference to the devastation that would come at the hands of Assyria and Babylon. So his surrender has given way to hardship and the promise of more hardship, right? Thankfully, that's not how the chapter ends. When all is said and done, at the very last line, <laughs> hardship gives way to hope. Take a look at verse 13. Though a tenth will remain in the land. That is a reference to how God is going to spare Judah, particularly Jerusalem, from the Assyrians. All right, so Assyria is going to come, going to wipe out a lot, but Jerusalem is going to be spared. All right? Next line. It will be burned again. All right, so this is a reference to how, yes, Jerusalem will be spared from the Assyrians, but about 100 years later, Babylon's going to come in, wipe them out. God's people are going to be deported, exiled to Babylon. So it's going to be a temporary reprieve. So they're going to be spared, but not forever. All right? But the very last line, like the terebinth or the oak, the leaves that leaves a stump, when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Now, it's really short, and I don't blame you if it didn't stand out to you this week, but that should be underlined in your hope color, right? That is a blip of hope right there. It's tiny, but it is mighty. Now, we know from our first week together that seed is one of those hyperlinked words in the Bible. I talked about there are some words that, just like the Internet, it all connects to different pages and different things. There's words throughout Scripture. You'll see it one place, and it'll connect to, like, a hundred different places in the Bible because it's just like a huge theme running through the whole, the whole course of, of Scripture. Seed is one of those words. You slap the word holy in front of it, and oh, my word, it ought to really pop out. Oh, so now we're talking about a holy seed. Like all of your radars, bible theme radars should be going off. All your Jesus radars should be going off. All of your like big promises, fulfillment radars should be going off when you see things like that. Right? Now, good old Isaiah does not bother to inform us exactly who this seed represents. Is it, there's two options at this point. Is it the, the remnant? The faithful remnant that will come through the judgment, or is it Christ? And you should be used to my answer by now. You have to keep reading. He's going to answer that. He's going to answer that, but you have to keep reading, all right? What we can know is that the stump, when Judah is wiped out, when Jerusalem is wiped out, all that's left is a stump. That is not the end of the story. There is going to be regrowth. The judgment that comes upon Israel at the hand of the Assyrians and Babylon's will, uh, Babylonians will not have the final word. And this is where it really comes into view that chapter 6 isn't just about Isaiah. What happens to Isaiah in this chapter is a picture of, of what God wants to do with the entire nation. The whole book of Isaiah is a call for the people of God to corporately declare, woe is me, for I am ruined. 
It's a warning that the fire of God's judgment is about to fall on the nation. That burning coal is on its way. But that the ultimate purpose for that judgment is their cleansing. It's their forgiveness. And just like with Isaiah, God has a calling in mind for this nation. A commission to bring his blessing and his light and his grace to the entire world. And interestingly enough, you fast forward all the way to the Gospels, Christ's preaching has a hardening effect as well. And he is very aware of it. In fact, he draws the connection from his preaching to Isaiah chapter 6. And yet, here we all are. On the other side of the world, in a room full of Christ-following Gentiles, who are looking forward to a new Jerusalem. The plan that God revealed way back in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Exodus 19, 2 Samuel 7, all those big covenant passages we went to in our very first week together, guess what? It's working. It's working. It's unfolding in real time, like present tense, today. The book of Isaiah is happening today. As we live and breathe, as we sit here in this room. <laughs> you guys, listen, listen, because we have to fight really hard to hear this message. We have to fight even harder to believe this message. I think it might be the main point every single week. God's plans don't fail. Like God's plans don't fail. <laughs> Even though you have it, it's crazy. It's crazy. Isaiah, go, go. And, and, and hey, your preaching is going to, nobody's going to convert. Nobody. Nobody's going to listen to you. How long? Well, until everybody's wiped out. But, but, there's something in that stump. I know what I'm doing, Isaiah. I know what I'm doing. something in the stump. God's plans don't fail. Ever. 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 That is the hope on which we walk out that door and do our life in this crazy messed up world, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, let me pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for the hope we have in Christ. I thank you that if we have eyes to see, there are evidences of your promises being fulfilled all around us, including the very existence of us in this room this morning. You are fulfilling your plan, and you're doing it through your church all over the world. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would allow our hearts to rest in that. Because we, get, we go out this door, and that is not the message we hear. 
it looks like you're not doing anything sometimes. It looks like evil is winning. It looks like the church is eroding and shrinking and no longer even a for what we see lord is really hard and i know for many women in this room surrender has given way to hardship in her life you know we want we want the happy story we want surrender to give way to fruitfulness and surrender to give way to ministry growth and surrender to give way to all these beautiful wonderful things and someday it will but in the meantime surrender has given way to hardship And Lord, we just need to know, we need to be reminded, your plans don't fail. Your plans don't fail. So Lord, whether we're thinking on a big national, big picture, macro level, or whether we're just kind of just can't even think about national news right now because of our, our own life is a dumpster fire. Lord, I pray that you just, that, that message would, would just, just fill our minds and transform our hearts. Your plans don't fail. Your plans don't fail. Your plans don't fail. And I thank you that every single week, the book of Isaiah is going to remind us of that. So we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay, so when it, you talk about a vision of the Lord or seeing the Lord, all right, so God is spirit. He does not have a body like a person. So anytime we have um, anyone, whether it's Moses or anyone in Scripture that had a vision or, or quote-unquote saw the Lord, what they are seeing is God has, has come condescended and manifested himself in a way that a human being can make sense of, right? So... Um, you know, someone could take a passage, well, God is wearing a robe. Well, no, that's what Isaiah saw. That's how God manifested his glory to Isaiah in that particular vision. But our God is spirit. That's why it's so significant that Jesus, that he sent his son uh, to take on flesh, right, to become one of us, to tabernacle among us, right? Um, so that's where when we think about seeing God, and when God is given a lot of times human characteristics, right, the arm of the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of this metaphorical language. Um, that's exactly what that is. It's, it's metaphorical language. It's, it's God condescending to make himself make sense to, to us humans. Um, yeah, so that's how I would answer that. The Lord and Lord, I was a little thrown off, and I wanted to double-check my notes, because the word Lord is Adonai there. It's, it's Master, um, Lord. It's not Yahweh. And as I was talking, I was like, did I get it backwards? I do believe Yahweh is usually the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I heard some responses, though, that some of you had it in all caps in your Bible. So I wanted to double-check that. I'll come back next week and, and confirm that. I do know, because I was looking at my exegetical, like, it is Adonai there in that, in that verse. Again, I don't split hairs over things like that. Um, but it does fit the, con the context. This is the... God, high and lifted up. He's the master, sovereign king. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, any other questions? 
little o, little r. That is so interesting. Okay, because I have a CSV here. All right, I got to check on that. I'm really curious now. That threw me off a little bit because I know it's Adonai, and Yahweh is the capital O, capital O, O. Yahweh is all caps. It is like the name, right? Yeah. Okay, so it's Yahweh. Yeah, Isaiah usually uses Yahweh. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, you guys have a little bit of time to discuss in your groups. <laughs> 